This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, hello, folks. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day. Boy, this is a cold day for a lot of folks. Big change in the weather for folks across the central U.S. in particular. We've got negative temperature readings up in the Dakotas and in Montana, all the way down to 70 degrees, 80 degrees right now in Miami. A lot of volatility out there in the weather. And we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in this first segment. Ed Valley is going to join me. We're going to look at the U.S. weather a little, but also we want to focus on what's happening down there in Brazil and Argentina. That South American weather, potential heat wave coming on has got these markets excited. Ed, thanks for taking the time to shed some light on it for us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Well, let's look at Brazil and Argentina first. We've seen this dryness start to accelerate. Ed, what's happened in the last week that's got the trade excited? Yeah, we're, we're seeing these models starting to roll forward with some of these uh, warmer temperatures and drier conditions. And what I mean by that is when you're looking at a weather model, right, they go out through day 15, and a lot of times you, you watch what's happening in the, let's say, 10 to 15 day, and, you know, it might look ominous, but we, needed, we need to see that information start to roll forward, meaning closer in time. So we're starting to see that data do that, and over the next week to 10 days, we're seeing a pretty good signal for quite a bit of warmth or even heat in parts of Argentina and southern Brazil. And there will be some localized moisture, but considering how high those evaporation rates will be, thanks to the heat, we're kind of worried that this could still linger uh, on the dry side here right through the month of January. Ed, let's put this heat in perspective. How hot is it going to get in that southern region of Brazil? Yeah, so the western parts of Paraná, and the southern parts of Mato Grosso do Sul, so two fairly large production regions, we're going to have highs uh, well into the 90s on some of these days, lows in the uh, 70s. So it's going to be a pretty warm pattern here, and that extends right down into northern and even parts of central Argentina here through the weekend. That includes places like Corrientes and places like Cordoba, which we know also produces quite a bit of agriculture products. Now, Ed, I mean, that's a pretty big geological or geographical expanse from Mato Grosso del Sol down to Cordoba. Uh, how far along are crops, particularly in that far south region of Brazil or Argentina? We're not yet at pollination, are we? No, no, we are not. We, we saw here, you know, at the beginning of December, things were finally planted down there in Rio Grande do Sol, Brazil, because, again, it's been dry there for quite a while. So they had trouble getting that stuff into the ground later or earlier in the season. So things are planted, but you're right. We're not close to pollination yet. However, as we know, if this dryness were to continue, which we believe it is, that could become a story around the pollination window as that approaches later January and into February. Well, that certainly makes sense. And you know, you mentioned the dryness, Ed. I know is yesterday or earlier today you were tweeting about just how dry it is getting. I mean, this is a fairly recent change that the rainfall has kind of shut off down there in Brazil. Yeah, and, and the start of the season was quite good in Paraná and, and even parts of Mato Grosso do Sul. Uh, it has been pretty dry even at the beginning in portions of uh, Argentina and Rio Grande do Sul, Brazil, but a lot of um, 
you know, Central Brazil has been doing really well. So when you look at the entire picture, right, we're noticing that this area in South Central Brazil, from a soil moisture perspective, is as dry as it's been over the last 15 or even 20 years, going back to 2003. So we're seeing a, a very ominous look in that localized part of the world. But again, moving forward, it's dry now. We still got to look forward, and there could be some decent rainfall here, especially in central Brazil, but it might sneak down into Mato Grosso do Sul and Paraná as we head into the first or second week of January. First or second week of January, that rainfall could be coming through. So we'll have to be watching the trade as that rain materializes or not. But Ed, how much moisture are you expecting? Is this a, a severe weather event? I mean, heavy rainfall potentially headed that way? You know, it, it, just like in the North or in, in North America summer, it's going to be convection. So we're going to have clusters of thunderstorms. Could there locally be some severe weather? Absolutely. But I think from just a precipitation perspective, I think any and all precipitation is absolutely welcome in that part of the world here moving forward. So even if it ends up being, you know, a half to two and a half inches of rain here through the middle of January, I think that will absolutely be necessary, especially with some of these temperatures we just discussed as well. Yes, that is true. And let's bring our focus a little closer to home here in North America. We are seeing this active weathered pattern develop. Where do you see things going for the rest of this week here? Yeah, so I, I think for the most part, the northern plains, the northern Rockies, we're going to be on the drier side to end 2021. You get down towards I-80 from Nebraska and Kansas, right on east into Iowa and parts of the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley, that part of the world is likely going to see some rain and snow here over the weekend. So really, you could argue it might be in 2022, but, you know, just for, for the sake of this discussion, this weekend could get quite busy. Nebraska rain and snow, Ed? Are we going to see some warmer temps yep. across that I-80 corridor? Absolutely. So what's going to happen here, as these storms develop, they pull warm air from the south, and of course to the north of the storm system, it's cold enough for snow. But that gradient looks to be somewhere from northeast Kansas towards north-central Illinois and up into Michigan. South of there, central Indiana, southern Illinois, Missouri, maybe even southeastern Iowa, looks warm enough for mostly liquid. However, you go north of there, there could be enough snow or cold for snow across the upper Midwest and central plains. Ed, I, I want to look at that potential for liquid moisture, that rainfall you mentioned across the, uh, you know, the southern Corn Belt there, Missouri, Indiana, Ohio. Um, those are places that, uh, you know, not too long ago saw some pretty severe thunderstorms. Will it get warm enough to spark more severe weather? Good question. And at this point, it looks like the further south you go, the better chance you're going to have. So we're talking the Mississippi Delta, parts of Arkansas, parts of maybe southeastern Missouri, southwestern Kentucky down into Mississippi and Alabama, that part of the world likely does get warm enough. But I think for our friends in northern Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, it should be stable enough just for plain rain. But it's something, of course, we're going to have to be monitoring as the system approaches. Let's look a little farther north. You mentioned that snow could be a potential as it gets cold enough. How much mm -hmm. snow are we talking and where, Ed? Yeah, so right now it looks like it could be on the order of four to eight inches, maybe locally up to a foot, depending on exactly where this plays out. Now, our GFS model, we, we look at many models, but our GFS model is a little bit further to the south and east with this system. That would bring more snow into parts of northern Illinois, 
any parts of uh, southern Wisconsin and eastern Iowa, but the, the European is a little bit further north, and it has a swath from central Nebraska through northern Iowa and into Wisconsin. So there's still some uncertainty as to exactly where the snow sets up, but there absolutely could be a swath of, like I said, four to eight, maybe locally one foot of snowfall here over the weekend. Oof, and that that potential threat exists from Nebraska, depending on where it works, all the way up to Wisconsin. Is that right, Ed? That is correct. All right, things to keep an eye on. Ed Valley from Empire Weather, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Mike. And folks, when AOA returns, we're going to talk to Darren Newsom about just what is happening with the U.S. dollar and what we could expect in 2022. So stick with us. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Considering an online pharmacy? Explore BeSafeRx to find useful information and resources to help you purchase medicines safely online. A safe online pharmacy requires a doctor's prescription, has an address in the United States, has a licensed pharmacist, and is licensed by a state pharmacy board. It's best to stay away from online pharmacies that don't meet these criteria. Discover more helpful tips and resources at BeSafeRx. Go to FDA.gov slash BeSafeRx. As a truck driver, I've learned how important road safety is. I know that large trucks need more time and room to stop. That's why I always hang back and follow other vehicles at a safe distance. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, try to remember to always give trucks extra space when you merge in front of them. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. 
While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA. We are talking about everything agriculture. Just discussed the weather down in South America with Ed Valley from Empire Weather. Now it's time to take a look at some of the financial issues that are facing us in our industry. Joining me to do that is Darren Newsom of Newsom Analysis. Darren, whew, looking at this dollar index, we continue to see an incredible amount of strength in the U.S. dollar. What's happening here? Yeah, Mike, it's a great question, and I think it's pivotal to what goes on in 2022. I've been a, I've been a long-term dollar bull, basically going, I don't remember how long it goes back, but it finally took off. And now as we approach the end of 2021, the U.S. Federal Reserve is talking about two, if not three, interest rate hikes in 2022. Now, this should be continuing to push the dollar higher, continuing to, to provide support. But a lot of that was baked in. So what we see, you know, it, it, the dollar is kind of stagnated now. And as I get ready to do my next round of, of monthly analysis, looking at the long-term monthly chart, you know, this dollar could be getting close to putting in the top. That's not necessarily good because if we want to battle inflation, if we want to you know, kind of get these costs of, of commodities back under control, we need this dollar to stay firm. That's our best bet. And so now, if all of a sudden the dollar starts to look like it's putting in the major top a little bit, uh, again, depending on what the Federal Reserve might eventually do in 2022, this could just put more fuel to the fire in the, in the commodity complex as a whole. Well, Darren, I, I mean, I think that's the question. I, the, the inflationary pressures that are happening right now are largely perceived to be beneficial to commodity prices. We in agriculture, do, do we want the Fed fighting inflation? Well, if we can pick and choose, uh, we certainly <laughs> want corn, soybeans, livestock, and all these. You know, if you're if you're a corn if you're if you're a grain producer, you certainly want corn, soybeans, and wheat to go up. If you're a livestock producer, you want livestock prices to go up, but yet you want you know corn and and soybean meal and all these things to go down. Uh, you want other input costs. You want fuel prices, and you want and you want natural gas and and chemicals and all these things to go down. It's it's a big picture sort of thing. And I think 2022 will not be quite as, uh, as hot in the commodity complex as 2021 was. You know, over the course of this past year, it was, like, it was like a relay race where one market would take off, scream higher, lose its steam, hand off the baton, the next one would go up. And sometimes they cycle back around. We're starting to see lumber come back into the forefront. So everything seemed to take a turn. If the dollar stays strong, if we see, you know, the interest rate uh, hikes that, that's expected, I think the commodity complex as a whole starts to see some supply and demand changes. Maybe we start to see some of these inverses and forward curves, you know, whittled away, sucked out of these markets a little bit. And then that would give them some room for overall commodity prices to come back down. 
Okay. I, I want to circle back to the Federal Reserve raising rates this mm-hmm. next year. They've talked about several, as you mentioned, two or three quarter percent interest rate hikes. Darren, I mean, we're looking at some of the data from November on inflation. We're six, seven, eight percent. Is three quarters of a percentage interest rate hike in a year enough to actually do any good to fight inflation? No, no, not at all. And, you know, it, it, it's a start, but uh, yeah, folks want to get real excited about, oh, you know, oh, interest rate hikes are coming, interest rates are going to go skyrocketing. No, we're talking about very small, it's, it's not going back to the 80s, you know, or anything like that, at least not yet. I, I, don't, I just don't see it happening. Uh, these are going to be very small increments. Now, could it just cool the fire? Could it tamp down the fire a little bit underneath the commodities? Yes, but... You know, the bigger picture is we have this incredible demand market going on right now. We cannot get goods fast enough. The U.S. just has to have goods right now. And this was sh- this showed up in the latest November merchandise trade deficit, which was record large. We are importing now more than we ever have before. We're not exporting many, much merchandise or, or many goods still have some of the ripple effects of trade wars and tariffs and all these sorts of things that are still bothering some of our domestic markets. But, you know, there's just this demand. There's this insatiable demand for goods in the U.S. Is that a sign of a strong economy? Is it a sign of increased disposable income? Is all these things, is is it just that we aren't producing anything right now that anyone wants to buy? All these things can be debated by economists. But for right now, certainly looks like it's going to keep you know, the, it certainly looks like it's going to continue to push inflation, at least as we head into the early part of 22. Darren, as you look at where inflation is appearing, you know, we've discussed in the financial media for some time about the equity markets moving higher, cryptocurrencies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seeing this inflow of capital. Are, are we seeing the same type of inflow of capital into commodities broadly and specifically into any of the eggs? Well, that's, that's a great question, Mike, and it comes back to a point that I, that I always like to make. The investors have gotten smarter over the years. It's not, it's not just a point blank, we're just going to go out and we're going to buy commodities. They're looking for those commodities that have inverted forward curves. Crude oil was a great example. You know, uh, lumber, when it when it's spreads, went inverted. They're looking for those markets with bullish supply and demand, and they're staying away from those that don't have it. The, the, the issue right now is that we're just tight on everything. We have, we have tight supplies of everything. And so they can, they can basically choose whatever they want. Now, there are some laggards still. The cattle market fascinates me because the future spreads there continue to look bearish, uh, but, the cattle, but the cash market stays bullish, and right now that's setting the tone. Uh, but that one is a concern to me, the way the spreads are set up heading out into you know, in the spring and summer of 22. So we have to watch that one. That one may not draw much attention from the investment side. Uh, there's some other markets, you know, corn, soybean. They still have very bullish fundamentals. They have very bullish uh, future spreads. But if those start to change, if it starts to rain or weather straightens up, whatever it might be in South America, and those soybean spreads starts to change, that's going to pull some money out of soybeans. So we have to keep a close eye, you know, on, on what these spreads are telling us because that's where the investment money is going to go. 
Interesting. And, you know, Darren, we come through a year like 2021 when farmers as an industry have more disposable income, pretty decent returns this last year, as it looks like they're going to be building a lot in 2022. You mentioned lumber coming back into the fore and what's happening with crude oil, some of these other commodities that we use on the farm. What are you watching? Yeah, you know, crude oil is one where I've, you, you're going to be shocked by this, Mike. I, I kind of take a contrarian stance on crude oil. Uh, all Everything I hear is about, oh, you know, crude oil is just going to go up, it's going to go up, it's going to go up. Fundamentally, probably will. But we've seen some pressure on those spreads here over the last couple months. And I actually make the argument that technically crude oil has turned down. So it looks like we are in this time frame where we're seeing a shift of opinion in the crude oil market. I think it could come down. I think that input cost, fuel in general, could start to back off. Natural gas is a wild card. Hard, you, know, you can't hardly make any prediction about natural gas, but it's unlikely that the European market stays up in the 30 cent range. It'll probably back off as well. So I think we could see some pressure and start to build in the energy complex possibly giving us some relief, possibly giving an opportunity to get some 2022 fuel needs covered. Now, Darren, I know we don't have the full December chart yet for you to take a look at, but as you're looking at crude oil, how far do you think we could slide in this market, given the fact that we do have a lot of folks with disposable income and inflationary pressure? Well, see, here's strong because we've had this uncommon unnatural, if you want to call it, mild start to winter. If we break this market down, uh, we had a low of uh, of 62 uh, earlier, let's see, earlier in November. So I think we could at least get down to that. From a technical point of view, if we take out that 62.43, you know, that kind of opens the door to that 60.62 range. Worst case scenario, maybe it gets down to about 51.52. Do I really think that's going to happen? I think that at that point, something's going to have to change in OPEC. They're going to have to actually prove that they are increasing their their daily quotas, uh, which is what they said they were going to do starting in January, but we all know how that goes. Uh, And that might be enough to move these spreads from the inverse uh, back into a carry situation and and just, you know, break some of these uh, long-held investment contracts that have been uh, that these, these investors who have been along this market for so long that could finally start to break them i'm not looking for that to happen okay darren before we let you go real quick lumber do you see that breaking anytime soon i i think as we head into winter here i think lumber is going to stay strong i like the market acting strong flying high right now all right darren knew some good thoughts a little contrarian opinion as expected thanks for taking the time to talk to us <laughs> Anytime, Mike. Appreciate you having me on. And folks, when AOA comes back after the break, we're going to talk about waterways with Paul Rohde from the Waterways Council and what's happening with the infrastructure bill. Stay tuned on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you. And we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. 
Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rawl. Yesterday, wheat futures were lower. Today, we are seeing futures in the green as they stabilize. The wheat decline was blamed on lack of export business. Weather worries in Brazil are mainly affecting soybeans. The largest portion of Brazil's corn crop is grown as a second season crop, which will be planted after the bean harvest. Weather has less of an impact on corn production and prices until then. It's another day of active weather in the U.S. forecast. More snow accumulation is expected across higher elevations in the west. There is light snow and mixed precipitation forecast across the central and eastern Corn Belt, and rain with potentially severe thunderstorms is forecast across the southeast. On the Board of Trade today, March corn trading a penny higher at 6.05 and three quarters. The May contract up a half cent at 6.07. For soybeans, the March contract down two and three quarters at 13.65 and a fraction of a cent. The November contract up a penny and three quarters at 12.74. For wheat, Chicago wheat March up to an fraction at 785 and three quarters. Kansas City wheat march up a penny and a fraction at 823. Minneapolis spring wheat march up two and a half cent at 1002. The May contract up a penny and a fraction at 994 and a fraction of a cent. In cash cattle country, it's slow to start following light to moderate business in the north yesterday. The majority of cattle were sold at $220, $3 higher than last week's weighted average basis in Nebraska. Some late afternoon deals came in at $221 to $200. The South was rather quiet yesterday, so we will likely see trade develop in that area today or tomorrow. For live cattle, the February contract up 92 at 140.32, April up 85 at 144.80. Feeder cattle March up $1.47 at 166.72, the April contract $1.40 higher at 169.92. For lean hogs, February trading 82 cents higher at 83.45, April up 65 at 88.20. You're listening to AOA, I'm Kirsten Rawl. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. 
AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day. We're talking about everything that's happening in agriculture. Just wrapped up our conversation with Darren Newsom, looking ahead to this next year from a financial perspective. Now we want to look ahead from a transportation perspective. Joining me for this segment is Paul Rohde. He's the vice president of the Midwest area for the Waterways Council. Paul, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Good to be with you, Mike. I want to talk. I think this is the first time we have had anybody from the Waterways Council here on the program. Could you give us just the 10,000-foot view? What do you guys do? Sure. We're a trade association. We're based in Washington, D.C., with a couple of offices, in uh, one in St. Louis, where I am, and uh, one in Paducah, Kentucky. Uh, and we focus on lock and dam infrastructure. Um, we have a, a really broad-based coalition. Agriculture is a big part of that. As, as you know, a lot of ag products... Uh, shipped on our on our inland waterways um, but the other products that are shipped you know cement uh, steel and so forth uh, fertilizer big part of that um, as well as the uh, carrier community so the companies that own the tow boats and barges um, we also have uh, contractors and the building trades as part of our coalition um, and uh, it, it, it's really an interesting situation when I can go into uh, a, a congressional office and I've got somebody representing the, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, Farm Bureau, and the AFL-CIO, and, and we're all singing out of the same hymnal. <laughs> that is that is a, uh, an interesting bunch of bedfellows that don't typically get together, but this is an issue that impacts so many folks. You know, the waterways are so vital for keeping America competitive on the global stage. And I wanted to ask you, Paul, before we talk about what might be coming in 2022, could you give us an update? We've heard so much about supply chain hiccups this past year. Overall, how have the waterways been able to deal with all the disruption? Have most uh, freight shippers been able to manage? Yeah, it's been an interesting year. You know, the disruptions and, and the damage that Hurricane Ida brought. You've got high demand for barges this year, record crop for export. You've got precautions uh, to ensure COVID safety on board the, the tow boats and the uh, tows. Uh, and now you've got the supply chain disruption we've all heard about. Um, you know, the inland industry has been fairly insulated from the supply disruptions that we've read about because those are for the most part, impacting the coastal uh, ports. Um, it hasn't been yet enough to move the needle on inland waters. Um, next year could provide differently. You know, the longer the disruptions go, the more it'll be felt across all industries. Um, I think the, the biggest impact to inland waterways as far as the supply chain disruption is the challenge of labor. Towing communities are hiring like crazy, offering amazing career opportunities uh, for people willing to learn, work hard. They can advance as far as their skill and their will will take them. Um, it's an industry with unique characteristics. You know, crews spend weeks at a time on board these tows and towboats away from home and family. Um, the federal vaccination mandate is going to provide uh, additional challenges. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, the inland industry has shown resilience time and again um, with the aging infrastructure. They're used to disruptions, unfortunately, um, mm -hmm. and they'll continue to uh, uh, provide sustainable transportation for all of us. 
Well, and it's that aging infrastructure that I, I really wanted to pick your brain about today, Paul, because we did have some some big moves in 2021. We saw some increased funding during the regular appropriations for the waterways, and then we got the infrastructure bill. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you folks were advocating for in the discussions over the infrastructure bill, and are you happy with what you ended up getting? We are happy with what we got because it's what we asked for. It came out down to be two and a half billion for locks and dams and the infrastructure bill. That's a major win. You gotta go way back uh, to look at any kind of uh, significant increase like like that. Um, you know, in, in recent history, you go back to the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Well, this infrastructure bill is a 400% increase from ARRA. Uh, in, in fact, this infrastructure bill uh, provides more funding than ARRA did in the past 10 years of appropriations combined. So that's a major win. That $2.5 billion is going to go a long way. And if we can continue that push with Congress to maximize appropriation levels over the next five years, we'll see nearly $4 billion for construction and rehabilitation on our locks and dams. Now, that's going to get us more funding, more new starts. Uh, and, and completions, hopefully, than we've seen in decades. Wow. And as you talk to folks in Congress, representatives and senators about this issue with the supply chain uh, being on everybody's mind, it seems like this might be the time to strike to secure some additional appropriations. Is that how you guys are reading the situation? Well, it sure is. And, you know, it, it's past time, frankly. We were talking about this years and years ago when we we're looking at the Panama Canal upgrades saying, look, we don't, we don't have the efficiencies to really take advantage. So, yeah, it, it, it's past time, frankly. Um, we haven't seen major capital improvements on a lot of our waterways uh, since their initial construction in the 1930s. Yeah, getting a little long in the tooth, Paul, and that's for sure. As you look at this $2.5 billion, potentially $4 billion that uh, that could be funded by Congress here over the next couple of years, how much actual repair or upgrades is that going to do? I've heard the figure thrown out that there's a trillion dollars in delayed maintenance on America's inland waterways. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's 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 really amazing what the Army Corps of Engineers has been able to to keep operational. Um, you know, we were talking that four billion is just construction. The other part of that is the operation and maintenance funding. The the infrastructure bill provides an additional four billion in O and M. Uh, now that's split among all of the business lines shared by the core civil works mission, but locks and dams and dredging are among those that would compete for that $4 billion. So there's a lot in there uh, for O&M as well to keep these operational, but the uh, $2.5 billion in infrastructure and the potential for $4 billion over the next five years uh, would go toward 15 already authorized projects that have been kind of languishing, For most of them have been languishing and, and have not yet started construction. Uh, seven of those uh, would be on the uh, upper Mississippi and the Illinois rivers. That is, that is some good news. And of those seven, how many more could get added to the list for new construction or refurbishment here over the next couple of years? Are, are we looking at all the locks and dams on the Mississippi River system? Unfortunately not. You'd have to go back through an authorization process to get Congress to approve the authorization. And that's not even, you know, that's not the funding. That's a total separate uh, bit of legislation. And give you an example of how 
long it takes to get these things done. The authorization for those seven locks occurred in 2007. Uh, we, oh. had, we had funding for design, which is uh, through the Corps' investigation business line, uh, from about 2005 to maybe 2010, and that dried up with uh, earmarks uh, coming to an end under then Speaker John Boehner's uh, reign. So uh, you'd have to go through a separate authorization. Now that that said, there certainly is a need for it. By and large, most of these locks on the Upper Miss in Illinois are single chambers that are half the length of the toes that ply the rivers. And, uh, you know, we've been dealing with these inefficiencies for decades and decades and decades, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that's the truth. And Paul, as, as you think about where this industry is going, we're hearing a lot about technology pouring into the ports and we're adding more technology to trucks. What have you seen technologically improve on the waterways? Is there some more stuff we can do with the locks and dams to automate things to improve shipping? Well, it's amazing how fairly um, efficient locks are. You know, it, it's a gravity-based system where the water from the river uh, goes into these um, uh, almost like canals underneath the ground to to allow the boats to either raise up to the uh, level that they're going if they're going upbound or raise go down to the level level if they're going downbound. Um, you know, I don't know that we, we're seeing a lot of automation on locks and dams. There was talk of that maybe 10, 15 years ago, and um, I haven't seen that needle move very much. I am hearing quite a bit about efficiencies on towboats, uh, and we expect a study to be released next year that will show even more efficiencies of towboats uh, when you compare and rail a truck. Um, as well as other stats like uh, accidents and fatalities and so forth. Uh, we're just a very energy efficient industry. And uh, most recently I've been reading about um, uh, even more efficiencies of, of the, these towboats, some of them going, you know, getting on board with this carbon neutral uh, uh, sustainability um, play that the administration, this administration is uh, very excited about. Absolutely. Before we let you go, Paul, you mentioned dredging. We've got uh, your river impediments on a number of inland waterways. Are we going to see dredging ramp up quickly in 2022? I don't know if it's going to be quickly. There, you know, the infrastructure bill has an additional uh, billion and a half available for coastal and inland ports. Um, I'm not sure how quickly that's going to be released. We're right now waiting on the Corps' work plan. Uh, so the, the, the law states that after the president signs the bill, the Corps of Engineers has 60 days, up to 60 days, to release how those, all of those funds are going to be spent. So sometime here mid-January and maybe sooner than that, we'll find out exactly what is going to happen and where. All right. Lots of things to watch for there. That inland waterway, of course, vital for American trade. Paul Rohde, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Good to be with you, Mike. Thank you. And folks, stick around with AOA. When we return, Jeff Coulter, University of Minnesota Corn Agronomist, will talk about the trials they ran across the state of Minnesota. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? 
they've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Oh, nice engine. Supercharged? Yep. High porosity and aggregates? Yep. Porous medium for gas exchange? Uh-huh. Microbial catalytic potential and repository for carbon and nitrogen? Check, check, and check. Oh, man, that is good under the hood. And to think I used to be impressed with hammies. So, when was the last time you looked under the hood at your farm's production engine? At your soil? Is it as healthy and productive as it can be? Stop by your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out and unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by NRCS and this radio station. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at dtnpf.com bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today. Today, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's. 
and more than 11 million family members and friends serve as their caregivers. While researchers are working tirelessly to end Alzheimer's and all other dementia, the number of people living with Alzheimer's is expected to more than double by 2050. The toll of the disease is monumental, and its devastation affects family, friends, and especially caregivers. No one should face Alzheimer's and dementia by themselves. If you or someone you know is struggling to provide care to a loved one, please share this message. You are not alone. Free help and resources are available 24-7. To talk with an expert and obtain disease-related information, care and support services, call 800-272-3900 or visit the Alzheimer's Association website at alz.org. You are not alone. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, talking about all things agriculture. I've said it a lot over the past few days, and I'm probably going to say it a lot more. We are gearing up for the New Year's, which means we are making all of those decisions that impact your farm or ranch for the next year. And, of course, one of the most crucial of those decisions is what are you going to plant? Research is done all across the country, and University of Minnesota recently released their corn grain field crop variety results. And we've got Jeff Coulter, the uh, Extension Corn Agronomist with the University of Minnesota with us today. Jeff, talk to us about your trials last year. You guys saw a lot of different weather over your trial area. Yeah, we had trials located at nine locations across the state, and we had a wide range in weather. Uh, Generally, it was kind of on the dry side to very dry during the uh, first half of the growing season. And then we got into uh, later July and into August, and then the rain started to turn on. And uh, that varied by location. But uh, we had big differences in the yield levels among the trials. Some locations, the average yield was around, uh, you know, 120 bushels an acre. Other locations, it was upwards of, uh, you know, around like 270, 274. So uh, big, big differences in, in range in yields. And it depended greatly on the moisture but uh in general we were very surprised at how well the corn did this year given the limited rainfall at most of the locations that 120 bushel corn that ground that it's on what would it have done in an average weather year would you figure closer to 200 yeah i would say so yeah that our our lowest yielding location was at crookston which is in the far northwest minnesota and they had severe drought the worst uh, out of all of the state pretty much for most of the season. And it was spectacular that it got that high of a yield. Uh, Typically, yeah, we'd be looking at around, you know, 190, maybe 200. That's kind of the high end uh, for that location. But uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting how well the the crops did this year, given the dry conditions. I think, uh, you know, having it dry early in the season sent those roots deep. And uh, for corn, it can tolerate droughts, can tolerate some drought uh, during the vegetative growth and have really minimal effect on yield so long as the rain turns on, um, you know, before tasseling and, and maintains uh, adequate moisture up through uh, the end of the year. So 
I think with those dry conditions early on, it sent those roots deep and uh, that was able to help that crop, uh, you know, scavenge some of that water that was in the subsoil. It is incredible with the technology that we can put into plant seeds anymore. Jeff, given the widely variable weather across the trial area last year, are there any takeaways you can really hold on to from this report or are these just building blocks of data? Yeah, I, well, I'd say at most of our locations, uh, except for maybe two or three, the yields are representative of what growers could get. Um, but for those locations where it was exceptionally dry and the yields were very low, I think uh, one may want to use caution when looking at, you know, trial results from those areas. Um, you know, if, the, if those yields aren't representative of what you're possibly going to get next year, you'd want to be real careful with looking at those and, uh, you know, probably take a look at them. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, base all of my decisions on that. And, you know, I would want to be looking for results that are from, you know, other growing environments. What else should they be thinking of in terms of hybrid selection if they're, if they're still waiting to pull the trigger on a crop for next year? Yeah, well, hybrid selection is one of the biggest uh, factors affecting yield for corn, assuming that you're doing most of the, of the other agronomic practices right. You know, the, the yield in our trials and in other trials that are done by others uh, can range from 30 to 50 bushels per acre among hybrids. And these are commercially available hybrids that are, you know, being entered into these tests by seed companies. And uh, so the, the range in yields can be quite spectacular. And uh, in addition, um, the yields keep improving each year with, with uh, the new hybrids that are being released. So uh, there was a study published a few years ago that's, that uh, concluded that on average, the yield improvement is about two bushels per acre per year. Uh, so, you know, you don't, if you have a good hybrid, you know, it's, it's going to be okay for a couple of years, but, you know, you get too, you don't want to run it too many years before it starts to, you know, lose its potential compared to the new competitors that are coming out. Yeah, there's always something changing. Speaking of, of new competitors, new traits, as you were looking over the results from the field trials, were there any trait technologies that really stood out to you this past year? Well, one thing that's really interesting is that uh, in our trials, there's about one third of the hybrids are conventional. About one third of the hybrids have both uh, transgenic resistance to herbicides and European corn borer, and about one third have transgenic resistance to herbicides, European corn borer, and corn rootworm. And that's give or take one, give, give or take a third of the hybrids fall into each of those categories. And that that's that's across all of our locations. And surprisingly, um, and in our trials, we typically use uh, crop rotation. Uh, you know, we're, we're controlling the pests. So, you know, these are in situations where the pest pressure is low, generally for corn rootworm and for European corn borer. And uh, in, in the trials, um, surprisingly, all three trait categories are performing about the same under this uh, minimal pest pressure. They're all, for the most part, um, do, doing quite well. So I think there's a lot of different hybrids uh, with, within different trait categories that can do well, um, you know, but uh, one would need to think about our, you know, what, what kind of pest pressure are you gonna have on your farm? What's your rotation, all these things. And, uh, you know, if you're gonna need to, 
you know, if, if you're not going to have transgenic traits for things, you know, how are you going to take care of them? Are you is that going to increase your herbicide costs, or may you need uh, an insecticide or something like that? So you may there's a lot of things to think about, but surprisingly, in the absence of the pest pressure, these uh, hybrids are performing quite well among all trait categories. It is incredible to see the way this technology continues to improve. Jeff Coulter, University of Minnesota Extension Corn Agronomist, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Okay, thank you. Folks, stay with us. We'll be back tomorrow with more AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.